Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Kevin Kajitsa, thank you very much for joining our podcast today. Really looking forward to learning more about you, your background, Seraphin AI. And if you wouldn't mind, could you please just introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for this opportunity, David. Um, my name is Kevin Kachidza. I'm a startup founder from Vancouver. And um, a lot of people already know my story, but for you know, for those who haven't heard about Seraphin, um, four years ago, I was just a regular banker. I was working at uh, a Canadian bank, uh, you know, big name brand that most people know. And uh, I was in the financial crime investigations department. So my job was to look into people's accounts and to know, see what sort of uh, activities they were up to and whether they were legal or not. And uh, that was pretty much my career path. I, I'd actually started the financial crime investigations career path in Montreal uh, when I first moved to Canada. And, you know, as somebody who was originally from Zimbabwe, um, who emigrated to Canada in the year 2012, uh, that sort of role, uh, you know, was, was probably the culmination of a career dream at the time, you know, to be working in this big bank and, you know, looking into these important issues. Um, but in the year 2020, uh, as many of us know, uh, there was a huge global event which disrupted just about everything. And that was, of course, the COVID pandemic. And so like millions of other Canadians, I found myself without a job, uh, sitting at home uh, on CERB, um, applying to every job that I could possibly be considered for uh, but no one was hiring. And if they were hiring, then they weren't hiring me. And so after a few a few months of um, really feeling sorry for myself, which I think is a, a reasonable thing for someone to do after they've lost their job, um, I decided that, well, if I had all of this time on my hands, then now was a good time to finally pursue my startup, uh, my tech startup dreams. I'd always wanted to start a technology company. I had no idea how to do it. Like I said, I was just a regular banker working in financial crime investigations. But being laid off gave me the opportunity to take a look at what some of, look at what some of my other options were. And uh, initially, I was targeting, you know, like a lot of founders, I wanted to go to the startup accelerator Y Combinator in uh, in California. <laughs> so one rejection late, uh, one rejection letter later, and I had to sort of reconsider what my what my plans were. And so to cut a long story short, I, I found a startup accelerator called the Founder Institute. The Founder Institute is probably the world's uh, largest idea stage technology accelerator. And uh, it's an organization that helps to take people from having an idea to incorporating their company to getting that all-important first investment. So um, I went through this 10-week program, graduated number one in that, uh, in that cohort, and investors were waiting at the other end. And uh, now, almost three years later, we've built a, a new type of e-learning platform, a new type of online learning experience, which leverages generative AI and machine learning uh, and has found its audience uh, in Southeast Asia and in South Korea and potentially also in Japan. So that's a brief rundown of how uh, Seraphin AI came to be. And, um, and yeah, happy to, to talk more about that. Impressive. If I'm not mistaken, you went to the London School of Economics, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it, it it was a while ago, but uh, that's uh, you know, I, I went to to high school in 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 Zimbabwe, and um, at the time, my parents were a lot like a lot of African parents. They had this view that if you focused on education and on you know just producing the best academic outcome that you could possibly achieve, 
then you know your future career is going to be a lot easier to to navigate. Uh, and so I, I was fortunate that I am the youngest of uh, of three siblings, uh, and my sisters, you know, all decided to leave Zimbabwe and go to university in exotic places like Georgia in the United States and and the United Kingdom. So I already had this this background and understanding that you know if you performed well enough in school, then these would become options for you. So you know I did the best I could, uh, got myself an academic scholarship to the London School of Economics and uh, did a bachelor's degree in in, in management. And uh, I still play an active role in LSE alumni uh, events. Uh, you know when I can find them out in Western Canada where you know things are slightly different. Uh, but yes, I am an LSE grad. So LSE. Not the worst school in the world, and yet still having trouble finding employment uh, in the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and you said you you were looking in your your dream was to start your own tech company. I was curious, like what what about tech inspired you uh, in the moment of the pandemic? Because you you mentioned that you're using generative AI, but there's many different types of technology. Like what what was it about tech that attracted you, and why did you ultimately choose AI? Yeah, well, they say that necessity is the mother of invention. So, you know, the, the primary driving factor, to be quite honest, David, was um, I needed something to do. I needed a job. I needed income. Uh, I needed to feel like, you know, I was being useful in life. Um, and at times I was I was pretty, pretty hard on myself. You know, I, I would, you know, the self-talk that uh, is involved with not having a job can can ultimately not be very helpful at all. But in this case, it probably was because I told myself that I didn't come to Canada as an immigrant to be unemployed and to sit at home and get get benefits. That was just not, it was just not something that I felt I was, you know, uh, that I wanted to do uh, or that should be done. Uh, and I chose tech because of proximity. Um, I think that was probably, you know, another major factor. There we were, uh, you know, as as a society, entirely locked down, unable to go anywhere very often, and uh, we had a couple of choices. Uh, we could either turn on YouTube and learn how to make sourdough bread, which I think was the big thing that was happening back then, um, or we could, you know, turn on the TV, you turn on, you know, log onto the internet and try to learn some new skills. I, I know that many people went through the pandemic. Uh, picking up a new language, picking up, you know, learning how to knit, uh, you know, learning some sort of a trade. And so initially when I was taking a look at the tech landscape, it was with that in mind, uh, with that understanding that um, at the other side of this lockdown, this pandemic, I wanted to come out of that uh, period a better person somehow <clears throat> with more skills, having learned something. And uh, I remember to, to focus on the you know the, the the tech aspect of your question. I remember being on YouTube watching cat memes or whatever it was that I was watching at the time. And uh, the next video that came up, I had the choice of either you know, like I said, learning how to make sourdough bread, or learning about this incredible new technology that was emerging at the time, and it was called generative AI, or at the time, just AI, and. Like I said, David, I knew nothing about it. Uh, to me, machine learning was the stuff of you know the movies and uh, you know Terminators and and that kind of thing. Um, but when you have a lot of time on your hands and you have a lot of opportunity, uh, you can learn a great deal within the space of three months, six months, if you dedicate a couple of hours a day to it. Is this around twenty twenty one? This would have been around twenty twenty one. Yeah, twenty twenty. I, I I spent most of that time looking for a job, getting turned down so many times. Uh, 
but early 2021 is when I really decided that this was an opportunity. That because that's about a year, year and a half before most of the world was aware of generative AI when ChatGPT made its big splash. Yes, yeah, it would have been really helpful if OpenAI had released ChatGPT right at the beginning of my startup journey because I probably spent most of the first 12 months explaining to people, you know, well, explaining my view that this generative AI technology was going to change absolutely everything. And that was incredibly powerful. But yeah, you're further ahead than most people. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps I was a little before my ahead of my time there. But uh, but yeah, it, it turned out the way that it turned out. Now the world appreciates the the power of this technology that we have available to us. And uh, and yes, I do have some views on, on open AI and some of what we've seen recently at the company. Well, maybe we could get into that. I wanted to ask you, though, because you're in a position that's fairly unique. I, I often myself have experienced this. I've often heard of people say they wish they were earlier. And yet you were earlier and you just described one of the challenges of being earlier. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? What is it like to be early to a space? Oh, wow. It's, um, uh, you know, I, I, I may be dating myself a little bit here, but back in the day, there were people who walked around town with big signs on them that said, the end of the world is nigh. <laughs> you know, the end of the world is near. You know, we've only got a couple of years, folks. This is it, the end. Because of AI. Well, well, actually, that's, that's related. Um, how does it feel to, you know, to be first uh, and to be describing something that is so revolutionary that it would change and impact you know, a lot of people's lives at a time when people don't really appreciate that that's the case. You do come across as somebody who... Tinfoil hat. Tinfoil hat, exactly. You know, you're... Uh, you're, you're uh, I don't know what you've been smoking. Maybe you've been smoking your socks, but, uh, you know, that, that may be wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, there, were, there were pockets of interest in, you know, what I was saying and what I was doing. But it was really kind of an uphill journey uh, in the beginning, David. In addition to the fact that we were all locked down, uh, you know, everybody had an idea during the pandemic, um, and uh, it, it was not an easy path to take. And a very different skill set, I would imagine, from being in a corporate bank doing uh, like uh, financial analysis, basically, to now salesmanship and like telling people about the future, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, and and that's one of the the transformative effects of uh, certainly when it comes to my situation one of the transformative effects of, of being laid off. Um, you know, I, I was in a certain comfort zone, as a lot of people in, in the corporate space are. You have your job. It's attached to a big name brand. You know, uh, your friends and family can be proud of what you're doing because people can at least relate to, you know, the brand or the, the institution. And then all of a sudden you find yourself at home without a job, no income, and nobody really cares about your ideas. Who am I really? Yeah, exactly. And so I wouldn't call it an existential crisis, but it did um, allow me to focus on certain skill set that I probably already had, but that had just become buried under this comfort zone of of being in in corporate Canada, and you know being a a national diversity spokesperson for you know one of the major banks uh, banks in Canada. Um, you know I, I think it takes being pushed in that direction to discover what you're truly capable of. And I think a lot of people will be surprised at what they are capable of, um, you know, if they put into certain situations. Fully agree. You mentioned belonging to a large organization has its its benefits, and now you're on your own. You get the sky's the limit for you, but you have to make it. So I'm curious for you, what would basically justify to your to your family, like, look, I've done it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it was it was 
it was a, a funny time because at the time that I started Seraphine AI, none of the usual rules applied. You know, it was like, it's not like like now, or maybe let's, let's say five years ago, if you said, hey, I, I've got this great idea for a, a new piece of tech and I'd like to build a company around it. Well, then, you know, people who cared about you would remind you of the risks of leaving full-time employment and all of that good stuff. And, you know, are you sure you're making the right decision? And some would try to be supportive. But when the world has been completely turned upside down on its head and, you know, millions of people are suffering, uh, some in the worst way, because they're not just dealing with unemployment, they're dealing with real health issues. The fact that somebody has taken the initiative to do something with their spare time and hopefully create something that could be of value. And if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't create that much value, then at least they've learned something from it. I'd like to think that my, you know, my, my friends and family appreciated that angle of it. Um, and, uh, but you know, what I do know is that everyone who mattered was supportive when it came to me starting the company. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, that's led to where we are today. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the support that I've received from, from friends and family and sometimes even just bystanders. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly impressed with what you've done so far. And I think sharing it with the greater world, uh, as you are right now, uh, will hopefully help others as well. Um, now, you mentioned something, you had your thoughts on open AI. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing I do like to say, and I say this to investors and, you know, potential partners around the world, I'm a first-time founder. So if sometimes I come across as, as not, as, as being more open than a typical CEO, it's because this is all new to me. And, you know, I, I just, I try to be the same person that I was before, just with new responsibilities. So... That situation with Sam Altman, OpenAI, and the OpenAI board was both hilarious and outrageous. I, I mean, it was hilarious because, um, or maybe that's just from, from my perspective, um, I felt I could see the folly in what the board was doing by firing the CEO of this massive company without informing their investors. David, I, I have I have um, angel investors, right? Uh, so we're not talking about Microsoft, you know, billions of dollars. Um, as a courtesy to my investors, right, uh, actual investors and potential uh, angel investors, I would not make a move that big without at least picking up the phone and saying, hey, um, I was thinking about doing this. Do you have any sort of issues with that? Do you have any thoughts, uh, you know, any guidance that you might want to offer? Um, because even if, at the end of the day, as is the case with Seraph and AI, I'm the major shareholder, I'm the CEO, I'm the founder. And so ultimately, I make the decision. But you've got to inform your investors, even just as a courtesy, that this is what you're, you're looking at doing. So I feel that um, the board's move in terms of removing Sam Altman was a rookie move. <laughs> I, I have no idea how they felt that that was going to fly uh, with their investors. Perhaps they were privy to additional information, which still has not come out. But certainly, I think the way that has played out, um, it turns out to have been a very, very uh, mismanaged um, way of doing things. Um, uh, it's interesting to see Sam Altman back. Uh, I think that um, it does give us some insight <laughs> into not only his influence in the AI sector and in the, in the industry, but perhaps what uh, OpenAI are working on right now. Uh, but beyond that, I wouldn't really, really speculate on what's going on behind the scenes. But I, I was, I was, I was surprised that any board of directors that uh, you know has any amount of experience uh, would pull a move like that without informing 
their major shareholders. Uh, I certainly wouldn't do that. And if you're a startup founder or an aspiring startup founder, I'd I'd always advise to you know keep in touch with your investors, uh, even just as a courtesy. Important to underscore that point. Thank you. Uh, what surprised me was these are some very intelligent people. So I assumed that they must know something we don't to act what would seem erratic from the outside. Um, and I'm also I was also impressed or surprised all, all sorts of things with Microsoft's response because it seemed like it really impressed upon me how valuable talent is at that level in the AI space because you quickly had, I think, Salesforce coming in, uh, Elon Musk coming in and trying to poach some of that talent. And Microsoft basically just signed a blank check and said, you know, whatever we need to do, we'll create a new company for you. Like, it doesn't matter. Uh, just don't go anywhere. We've got this and just wait until it spills over. So that was really uh, like a masterclass, I think, in uh, management at that level from uh, Satya Nadella and perhaps others. Yeah, just a while. Like people say, well, there'll be a movie about this someday or a book or perhaps a series. Uh, but yeah, so, something very unusual, uh, I think, happened. And I, I think there's a lot that perhaps the outside world didn't know and maybe never will know. Yeah, agreed. I, I'm on team Altman on this one. It was just uh, it was just very bizarre. But uh, hopefully uh, the company continue can continue to grow and thrive and uh, and deliver us some some new products. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Seraphin AI, could you talk a little bit about what is it? Like, why, how did you choose the name? Uh, what is it doing? Uh, let's start with that. Yeah. So uh, long story short, um, Seraphin AI is a new type of online learning platform. When you first log into our platform, it looks like just any other e-learning platform. You've got your dashboard, you've got your leaderboard, you've got, you know, who was trained, you know, what courses they took, etc. But when you take a closer look at the platform, you realize that almost all of the content is delivered by uh, or created with generative AI. So we use text-to-video, we use text-to-speech, uh, and we combine all of these elements together to create this new type of online learning experience. Uh, the great thing about generative AI, well, one of the greatest things about generative AI, which speaks particularly to my background, is its ability to create content in different languages. The ability to translate knowledge and information from one language in one form to another language in another form. And, um, you know, initially at the beginning, I alluded to the first year of, uh, you know, Seraphine AI in Canada being pretty difficult. It was quite a hard argument to make. And, you know, in, in, in retrospect, it was probably because the utility of the translation element, the power of AI to, you know, to, to deliver information in different languages was probably only of limited use in Canada where we only speak English and French. But once you get to uh, countries where uh, there is an incredible diversity of languages uh, and there is an absolute hunger and a thirst for learning uh, and getting this high quality training and education into these societies, uh, that's when you know our, our, our fortunes really took off as uh, as a company. So um, our mission as a startup is to help corporations, businesses, and schools to learn smarter and better uh, using AI. And uh, and we found our audience in Asia. That's uh, that's where we will be focused on. You know, for for most of 2024, I would expect. Uh, although I do have plans to see you know what uh, headway we can make in uh, back home in North America. And you've been on a few trade missions for Canada. Could you talk about that? How did you 
do that? What is it like? And what would you recommend for others perhaps considering the same thing? Yeah. Um, you know, for, for folks who are wondering how it's possible that a small startup from, you know, downtown Vancouver could make the progress that we've made in markets as diverse as, you know, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, the Philippines is coming up next, uh, potentially Thailand as well. Um, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, um, you know, right place, right time when it comes to the AI sector. Uh, but secondly, uh, about a year ago, uh, slightly more than that, actually, I made the strategic decision to align Sarafin's international growth strategy with Canada's international diplomacy efforts. And that sounds kind of complicated, but Canada has some very clear priorities when it comes to uh, international diplomacy and international trade. And most recently, the emphasis has been on um, the Indo-Pacific strategy for Canada. There have been uh, a great deal of resources allocated towards that Indo-Pacific strategy. There are many parts of government that are working in, in, in concert to advance that Indo-Pacific strategy. And I simply took the, the list of countries that Canada was focusing on, uh, took a look at all the resources that were available for, you know, to promote international trade and put together a proposal to, uh, to completely align Sarafin's internalization, internationalization strategy with Canada's strategy. Um, the, the Canada brand is an exceptionally strong brand. You know, needless to say, that's the whole reason that I emigrated to Canada. Around the world, Canada is known as uh, a leader in many areas, including in innovation and also social issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, tolerance, uh, those sorts of issues. And so when you translate the power of the Team Canada brand, you combine that with the resources which are available to Canadian companies and Canadians to, to take their products overseas. Um, and then you also look at the enthusiasm with which, you know, many uh, Team Canada representatives, uh, embassy staff, the enthusiasm with which they've, they've greeted Seraphim AI and, says, and said, we think that this can work really great in our markets. That is what has resulted in the progress that we've made to date. I always tell our, our valued partners at uh, the Trade Commissioner Service uh, at the Canadian Embassy that there is no way uh, that I could have done this uh, without their support uh, and without their guidance. Um, you know, as a small company, as a uh, a small startup with limited resources, uh, as a minority founder as well, who who and an immigrant who came to Canada and doesn't have, you know, perhaps the you know the networks and the the resources that you know other Canadians do, uh, I could have no, I, I never could have achieved this without the support that I've received. Uh, you know, through the Embassy of Canada around the world. And now we're really beginning to uh, to experience the benefits of that uh, in terms of our, you know, our pipeline of opportunities, in terms of the, the partnerships that have already been signed, uh, and just where we're going as a company. Um, and so the Team Canada experiences were really extremely valuable um, and, and, and really propelled, uh, you know, the growth that we've seen in, in, in our business recently. That's great. And you said you're focusing on Asia uh, for the foreseeable future. Are you also considering perhaps Africa in the future? 
Yes, and uh, and not just because my mom would be would be extremely disappointed if I didn't, <laughs> but there is a very strong case, uh, you know, for for investment in Africa in a variety of sectors. Um, my very first job out of university, um, you know, after LSE, and after you know doing some internships in the United States, um, my very first job was in um, uh, equities analysis in in, uh, in in Zimbabwe. I actually worked for HSBC Bank in Zimbabwe uh, many years ago, and my job was to uh, to connect with international investors and speak to them about the opportunities that existed to invest in Zimbabwe. And, and so I saw how, you know, investors would come into this frontier market, you know, put in a million dollars and some would exit with nine million dollars. And um, and so, you know, it, 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 it's part of my origin story, uh, you know, an understanding of African markets and understanding of the opportunities there. Uh, but I am Canadian. Uh, I've been living in Canada, in Canada for 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 many years. Um, my initial inclination is to. Uh, uh, it's to look at Canada and see where uh, we can make progress there, uh, how we can make contributions to the quality of education in Canada, uh, to the understanding and awareness of AI. Um, but there are definitely opportunities in Africa. And, uh, you know, if there are investors out there that are interested in African exposure, I'd be very happy to talk to them about, uh, you know, what we could prospectively work on in Africa. But um, one of the you know, what, one of the byproducts of of having this much, I'm going to call it this much success so early because it is, you know, within the context of being a small startup. But one of the byproducts is that um, we've gone from having no opportunities, you know, to knocking on many, many doors and, and not being able to make that much progress to now really having too many opportunities for one small team to handle. So now I have to I have to deal with that. I have to handle it somehow, either by increasing the size of the team or by reducing the scope of opportunities that we're focusing on. And you know, the easiest thing to do, especially when you you, you do get this growth quite quickly, is to is to narrow the opportunities that you're focused on. And so, geographically, I've chosen to focus on Asia. Um, I personally believe in the mantra "Go where you're treated best," and certainly. Uh, the welcome that Sarafin has received in different Asian markets suggests that that's where we really should be focused on. Um, we've built some high-value networks uh, in Asia, um, but you know I still have access to uh, high-value networks in Africa. Fun fact about myself, uh, David: I'm probably one of the few um, Africans who's you know had the benefit of being mentored and essentially trained by an African billionaire or somebody who is an African billionaire now. Wow, um, you know, folks who've been in uh, in the African telecommunications sector for long enough will know that I worked for um, you know one of the richest men in Africa, Strive Masiwa, who's the founder and CEO of um, of Econet Wireless or Econet Global now. Okay, and, and that experience has really fed into you know me being able to to take a look at these international expansion opportunities, recognize where I've seen certain patterns before as far as opportunities are concerned, and then execute. Uh, so yeah, hopefully we will uh, we will do business in Africa sometime soon in the near future. Uh, we already do have opportunities, uh, and uh, and let's see what happens. Yeah, get some get some wins in, in Asia. It sounds great. I think uh, most of the people I've spoken to in the region say that this decade is just chock full of growth in the Indo Pacific region. So I think you know you have some sound logic. Being a startup founder, what have been some? Could could you just mention maybe one of the things that surprised you? I, you knew, you kind of knew you were 
you know, going to climb a mountain, but, but, you know, could you just share something that, uh, that surprised you? Yeah. Um, a couple of things surprised me. Uh, first of all, how difficult it is, <laughs> particularly in the beginning. I mean, I, I knew to expect, um, to expect challenges. Uh, I think we should all expect challenges when we embark on new ventures, but the, it had never really dawned on me that when you're a startup founder, not only do you work every day, <laughs> but you're working at you know odd times of the night, uh, even when you're not in front of your, your your computer or in front of the work that at hand, you're thinking about strategies, you're thinking about opportunities that have come in, you, you're thinking about somebody that you met three weeks ago who you really should reach out to because there's an opportunity there and you forgot. <laughs> because you have so many other opportunities that have been uh, coming in. Well, hopefully you get to that stage as a startup founder. Um, but yeah, the difficulty of this, this sort of enterprise is, is, is something that, uh, that really surprised me. But what also surprised me um, was the scale of the opportunity, uh, the scale of the upside, if you're able to execute and to get it right. Now, I wasn't surprised because I hadn't seen it before. I mean, we've all read about you know, the stories of Facebook and, you know, how different companies went from nothing to, to essentially household names. That wasn't the source of my surprise. The surprise was that it was happening to me, you know, that I was having the one now having these conversations with investors where they said, well, you know, uh, we'd like to purchase 10% of your company for X amount. And, you know, that, that, you know, that level of upside is something that you can really only experience when you own your own business and when you're in the kind of tech space and the AI space that that I'm involved in. It's entirely possible in other sectors as well, but it's most famous for happening to technology founders. So you go from having a pretty ordinary life where, you know, your your dream in life is to, you know, to earn a certain amount and, and to climb the corporate ladder, right. to having these opportunities that, you know, really just, uh, you know, for many people would take half a lifetime to, to even get 25% of the way there. Uh, and if you execute correctly, it can be completely life-changing, not only for yourself, uh, but for, you know, the people that work with you, for your team, uh, and for potentially generations to come, if you execute it correctly. Now, of course, if you don't execute it correctly, you could lose everything, including your shirt. So uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting endeavor. I would say you're going from a ladder to a rocket ship. That's good that you included uh, a kind of a, a challenge and also a, a success. Now you applied to Y Combinator. Kudos. I think that's that's great. Uh, now you're, you have some angel investors. Are you still considering venture capital down the line? Yes. And to, to be clear, um, I was approached by multiple angel investors, but I in, ultimately only chose one. Uh, there were a couple of reasons for that. Um, I didn't want to raise too much money uh, at the time. Um, uh, also, the the plan that I had for launching this product didn't appear to require millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and I also wanted to see how this would, you know, how this would play out before, you know, uh, raising a, a, an, an additional round of funding. Uh, but recently, uh, Sarafinia has come to the attention of uh, venture capital investors. And um, there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, firstly, um, I recently graduated from uh, yet another Founder Institute program. Uh, this one is called the Founder Institute Funding Lab. And it's specifically for pre-seed uh, or seed stage companies that have some traction and are now looking to 
you know, to raise a million dollars, two million dollars, uh, perhaps more than that, uh, in order to, you know, to really fuel their growth. Um, so we've been getting some attention because, uh, you know, I graduated from that program. Um, something that I emphasize to to people that are new to Silicon Valley is investors literally wait at the other end of those startup accelerator programs to filter out what could potentially be bad ideas, and then just to focus on, you know, those prototypes, those projects, those startups that have the highest chance of success. Uh, so if you do have an opportunity to join a startup accelerator, I'd, I'd always say take that opportunity if you want to build, you know, build a tech company. Uh, but we're also getting VC attention because we, we, we finally reached that inflection point where with the right level of resources and support, um, you know, we could go, we could go global very quickly. Um, this is because of the partnerships uh, that I've signed, uh, mostly in Asia, but uh, with potential inroads into other parts of the world. Um, and the scale of those opportunities. Uh, a year ago, I was talking to people about how, um, you know, we were looking to deliver high quality training and education into the corporate space. Uh, you know, we're looking for, you know, perhaps that one great client with 5,000 employees that we could build. You know, build our products and services around, um, and if only you knew someone who worked in a bank. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, so, so, and, and you know, my job was to articulate that vision and how we could get there if we just had the time. If we, you know, now when I speak to our stakeholders and our investors, I'm talking to them about existing agreements, existing partnerships, the scale of the opportunity when one of your partners is uh, is a you know, it, it is a part of a major Asian government. You know, they're a department within a major government in Asia. Yeah. The scale of the opportunity is entirely different. Uh, how you're able to speak about it is entirely different. Um, and so, you know, Asia is going to be our focus for, for, for the foreseeable future. And we really do hope that venture capitalists who have an appetite, uh, you know, for education technology, uh, who have an appetite for Southeast Asia and for East Asia as well, um, give us a call. You know, we, we, we're always happy to talk about our business. Great. Are you able to talk at all about any of these partnerships? Is it too early to mention who some of these partners are? Oh, uh, not at all. Um, you know, some of these partnerships have been announced publicly. Uh, you know, we're very proud of the the partnerships that we put together and the caliber of, of partners that we have in Asia. Um, it's not a secret that uh, Sarafin, for example, is an official partner of the Smart Cities Association of Korea, uh, which is a department within the South Korean government whose mandate is to um, is to build and grow these cities of the future and to provide support to the ecosystems which are involved in doing that. Uh, and that's in South Korea. It's no secret that in Singapore, Sarafin is a, an official partner of the Smart Cities Network uh, based out of Singapore. Now, the great thing about that particular partnership is that it is actually in a partnership. is It's actually a partnership that gives us access to smart city related projects all across Southeast Asia. So not only in Singapore, but in the Philippines, uh, in Vietnam, in Thailand, uh, Cambodia, Laos, other areas as well. Um, and the challenge for us then becomes not you know uh, where will we find the opportunities to do business, but we've really got to focus on you know two or three. Uh, high-value opportunities where we can make the most difference, the most impact, uh, and which are aligned with our values. Um, 
you know, there are additional partnerships that we've announced as well, uh, and perhaps one or two that I may announce uh, during the course of December 2023. Uh, but yes, our, our product has really found its its home and its audience uh, in these uh, in this region, and uh, and yeah, there'll be more announcements. Great, looking forward to it. Um, you had mentioned that. In 2021, it was early days. You had to really sell people on the idea and inform them about the, the need. And here we are, 2023. There's seems like every day there's a handful or more than a handful of generative AI companies or companies like leveraging generative AI in some capacity. And also, your competition used to be human-generated content, e-learning platforms and the like. Now, are you seeing a lot more uh, people like you, if you will, like like other startups uh, leveraging AI for training purposes? Yes, absolutely. And you know, one of the secrets that I kept with me for my first, you know, couple of months at least uh, of building the company was that the product that I was proposing, a new type of e-learning platform that leverages generative AI and and later on in the future machine learning, it already existed in a limited form in a couple of big name companies, uh, starting maybe three years ago, maybe it was slightly more than that, uh, but around about the time of the pandemic, there were large companies like um, WPP, which is one of the largest advertising companies in the world. They had cottoned on to the fact that you could use generative AI to create standardized training for employees that they had in different markets and different regions. So they were already doing this using the same platforms and the same tools and the same technologies that Seraphin was proposing uh, to use. And so, you know, as part of my initial pitch, you can imagine, David, when you're, you know, your first time startup founder, you've got your, your pretty pitch deck and all that sort of thing. But that's pretty much all you have. You have your pitch deck, you have your enthusiasm and you have your credibility and how much credibility you can build within 10, 15 minutes with investors. But one of the things that I would say is that this approach to training, learning, and development already exists in some of these big name companies. They just don't announce it to the world um, because there's no real reason for, for them to do so. Their, their core business is not generative AI. Their core business is you know, advertising or you know whatever it is with that particular corporation. And so um, looking forward, I fully expect uh, more players to come into uh, the space that Seraphin AI um, started in, you know, two and a half years ago. Uh, I do think that there will be plenty of time before we reach the level of saturation where that would be a, a concern uh, to me. And I perhaps have some explaining to do when it comes to, you know, stakeholder meetings. Um, and the reason why I think that we're far from, you know, saturation in this market is my view is that to be, to, 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 to be most effective with these AI tools that we have available right now, you have to pick a particular niche or a particular use case where you know your approach to using those tools can be the most valuable, can create the most uh, the greatest impact. Um, there's always been value in niching down when it comes to you know products, services, etc. And I think as this uh, this sector continues to grow, you will find players that are very specifically focused on particular areas. For example, Seraphin is now growing a reputation for uh, smart city related, uh, you know, training and education that leverages, uh, you know, generative AI. But when we started two years ago, we were using generative AI for cybersecurity user awareness. That's what we wanted to 
assist corporations with. That's what we wanted to, you know, where we wanted to leave our mark. And, um, you know, uh, as a startup founder, you know, I'd been told to expect to pivot, <laughs> you know, in future. Fortunately, this wasn't that much of a pivot. Uh, it just required us to focus on a very particular sector uh, in a in a part of the world that was extremely welcoming and ex- and, and and very ready, uh, you know, for the AI revolution. Uh, so that that that's my take on 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 what we should see going forward: more competition, more players coming in, more more use of generative AI uh, in different spaces. Thank you. Yeah, it moves so fast, doesn't it? From 2021 to 2023, it feels almost like a decade, even though it's only two years ago. And it seems like that that rate of uh, growth is only going to continue to increase. However, it also seems like everything comes with trade-offs. So both the bad comes with some good, the good comes with some bad, and you just have to pivot. You just have to basically make the prioritize and make the right decisions. And uh, like if you have more competition, that gives you maybe more sources of inspiration, more opportunities for collaboration. Maybe the, you get into mergers and acquisitions, et cetera. But you just keep keep going, keep growing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, there it, it cannot be overemphasized that artificial intelligence, generative AI, uh, and machine learning really have the potential to completely revolutionize. I would say. 80% of industries out there, it might even be 90%. We're talking about a watershed moment uh, in, in technology, similar to you know, the advent of high-speed internet uh, and the opportunities that are presented to, you know, to people around the world. Um, for those who aspire to perhaps do some sort of business, create some sort of product or prototype in this space, I would say that there's probably a window of opportunity of another year or two uh, before things start get getting you know extremely competitive, um, but there are also certain risks that come with this technology, and I'm glad to see that there is a robust debate about those risks. Um, I feel that uh, at a political level, uh, certainly within Canada, um, those discussions are not advancing quickly enough. Uh, we need some certainty when it comes to regulation, uh, particularly the regulation of 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 uh, you know low risk applications of AI, like, you know, like what we feel that we do. Uh, but also, of course, the high-risk ap- applications, which really have the potential to do great damage to society. We need clarity on where the Canadian government stands on these issues so that, you know, companies like my own can formulate plans around what we're going to do in Canada uh, and how much restriction that there will be or will not be on on building AI businesses in Canada. Um but AI can do a, a tremendous amount of harm, but can also be a tremendous force for, for good uh, in this world. Uh, from the medical field uh, through to, uh, you know, as, as, as we focus on education, we believe that education is the cornerstone of progress in every society. Uh, and that's why, you know, I've chosen to focus on, on education. But there are many, many applications of AI uh, which can be used for good. And I really hope to see, you know, more people take an interest uh, in this space. Well, thank you for talking to us around Midnight and Thailand. Uh, where can folks follow what you're doing? We have seraphin.io. Is there anywhere else you'd like to direct them? Yeah, absolutely. I always encourage uh, folks to uh, to follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is the social network where I got my first big break. It's where my first investors or people connected to my investors um, uh, got to know about what I was building. Um, but yes, you can always go to www.seraphin.io, uh, follow us on LinkedIn, uh, and, uh, I'm always posting, um, 
updates on our future plans. And I have some really exciting announcements uh, to make in the next couple of weeks. So uh, check out my LinkedIn page. It'll all be there. Will do. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Horizon Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.